good to sing prayer, and that is our prayer, that, that the Lord would speak until his church is built. That's how, that's how the church gets built. It's, it doesn't get built. Uh, in many ways, God uses the hard work of many people. He uses uh, me as a pastor, elders as elders, deacons as deacons. God, God uses all of that. But in the end, God's church is built um, as, as he speaks, and he speaks to us most clearly in his word. And so a part of what we spend every Sunday morning doing is we keep coming back because his church isn't, isn't complete yet. And so we keep coming back to the word, keep asking him to speak until his glory fills the earth. And so, so we're doing this morning. We are, uh, as you see, maybe in your bulletin, there is a, uh, an outline uh, for the message this morning. You can go ahead and open up your Bible to Mark 16. 9 through 20. We'll get to that here in a moment. You see, we're kind of doing two passages today, and I'll explain why here in a little bit. But there's chocolate cake on the screen, isn't there? I saw, yeah, I saw some people like, hey, what's that? Um, so there's chocolate cake on the screen. Here's, here's the deal. When I was growing up, uh, we had dessert after every meal except for breakfast. It was just like a given, and I didn't realize that that wasn't even normal. I thought that's what everybody did. Uh, which was hard when we got married and stuff. Like, it's not even healthy. It's not good. But that's what we did. And I still like it if after a really good meal, even if I'm full, for whatever reason, even if I'm full, I, there's still something in me that says, you know what would be really good right now? Like some chocolate and some coffee. That would be really good right now. Like at the end of whatever meal it happens to be. We used to even sometimes in my house, we'd have like breakfast for supper, so we'd have like pancakes. So you got pancakes, which are dessert in themselves, with syrup on them. We get done with that, like what's for dessert? Can I have a cookie now? After a pancake, right? So I just got used to having dessert all the time. But I want you to imagine this with me, because maybe you're like me, you like to end a good meal with dessert. I want you to imagine this with me. Imagine that you get invited to go to somebody's house for a meal. So here you are, you go to a good friend's house for a meal, and it's going to be extra good because you know that they're a really good cook, and they told you don't bring anything, just show up. And so there you are at their house, seated around the table, having good conversation with good friends, eating really good food, and you are overjoyed when they come and they take your dinner plate away, and they replace that dinner plate with a piece of cake that looks like that, like this multi-layered, beautiful, melt-in-your-mouth chocolate cake, and then they pour a cup of coffee for you, and the coffee's maybe a little more bitter than you would normally make it, but when paired with that super sweet, melt-in-your-mouth, multi-layered chocolate cake, it just works really, really well. You know what I'm saying? And then, and then, and then you're getting towards the end of the meal, and you're having great conversation. You take one last big drink and empty your cup of that bitter coffee, thinking I'm going to end this on a sweet note. And I'm going to have one more piece of cake, and it's just going to be perfect. And you look down, and you realize that sometime in the point of your conversation, you had eaten all your cake. And so now you have in your mouth this, this bitter taste of the coffee. You're like, man, it would be really good if I just had like a piece of one more bite of cake, just one more bite of cake. And you kind of long for that. And now it would be a horrible substitute if you, if you long for that so much that, that instead of being satisfied with where you were at, that you whipped out one of these things, a cosmic brownie. You, you eaten a cosmic brownie before? This is like a weak, weak anybody big fans? I'm going to offend anybody by, okay, all right. Just, just so you know, I'm putting these on the table for the dinner afterwards. So get in the front of the line. If you, there's only six in the package, so 
You want to get in the front of the line. But Cosmic Brownies, okay? It's still chocolate, but you can't really compare this to that beautiful multi-layered melt-in-your-mouth sweetness of a homemade chocolate cake. But you might be tempted to, to take a Cosmic Brownie out of your purse just to help because you want to end on a sweet note, right? Maybe not. Maybe you wouldn't really do that. If they're good friends, you might be willing to do that. Okay, all of that. Like, okay, so is this all about cake? Uh, no, something even sweeter than that. This is about God's Word, okay? And so I want to look at Mark 16, 9 to 20, because here's the deal. What we've been doing as a church for a long time is on Sunday mornings, we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And we've been doing that through the Gospel of Mark. And two weeks ago, on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, we ended our journey through the Gospel of Mark with Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And I said, here, here's the end of our journey through the Gospel of Mark. But if you're alert and you were using your own Bible and you had it in front of you, you'd say, hold on a second, Jeremy. Uh, I thought you said Mark is done, but I've got some more stuff. I've got some more stuff in my Bible. My Bible doesn't end with Mark chapter 16, verse 8. Because we got, we got, remember, two weeks ago, just to review, in verse 6, we got this sweet, sweet ending of the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, we were introduced to this is who Jesus is, and this is what he came to do. And then we get to verse 6, and we hear these glorious words. The messenger says to the women who come to the tomb, they say, You look for Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he is not here. He is risen. And we were like, Yes! This is good. Jesus is risen from the dead. And it seems like the Gospel of Mark is going to end on a sweet note. And then we get verses 7 and 8. It's kind of like a bitter drink of coffee. In Mark, Mark chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, just a reminder, said this. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mark's gospel has been so good. We've just been feasting on it over and over again. And we get to verse 8, and we're like, really, that's how it ends? It ends with, he tells them, go tell some other people about this, and they don't do it because they're afraid. And then it's just done. Like, oh, that's not, how, that's not the sweet note that we wanted Mark to end on. And so, like I said, some of you noticed that, well, there's other stuff after that, but depending on your translation in the ESV, which we use, the NIV, whatever, there are parentheses after verse 8 that say this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Depending on your translation, some of them will put the whole thing in parentheses. Some will have it in a footnote. There's all sorts of different ways, depending on the translation, that we see this. So, Question is, what is what's the deal with Mark 16, 9 to 20? What is that all about? We're gonna, we're gonna, here's the way it's gonna work this morning. I'm gonna explain that for a little bit, but then we're gonna move on for the last half of our time together and actually look at a different passage. So what's the deal with Mark 16, 9 to 20? It seems like, and there, there's general agreement among conservatives. There's, there's people that are skeptical of everything that's in the Bible. That's not my team, right? I'm on the team that says the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God with complete authority over everything, okay? And so, so, so that's the team that I'm on. And a lot of people on that team will, will look and say, so 
there is a question. What do we do with verses 9 to 20? Are they supposed to be there? Is that what Mark actually wrote? Was that the ending of Mark's gospel? And almost everyone agrees that no, that's not what Mark originally wrote. It's been there for a long time. Because, I mean, imagine... There, there's people, we didn't have copy machines when the Bible was first written, right? So as Mark writes his gospel, he writes it on a, on a, on a we have a manuscript, right? And, and so people are making a copy off of that manuscript. And then copyists make copies of copies and that kind of thing. As copies take place, even though the original manuscripts were inerrant, without error, right? That, that as people made copies over time, Things started, like, there was just minor things that they, that they, you know, wrote down a word wrong or something like that. It seems, though, that early on, this is kind of the biggest one in all of the Bible, really, Mark 16, 9 to 20, the biggest one where we kind of have to scratch our head. Because it seems like early on, somebody, one of the copyists who was looking at the manuscripts, gets to the end of verse 8, and they, they tasted it like a bitter drink of coffee. And they're like, I want to add something to that, because it just shouldn't end with the women being afraid, and that's it. And they had heard accounts from people like maybe Matthew or Luke or John. And they had heard some other stuff. So they just added on to the end of Mark's gospel what they thought would be a good ending. Right? So, so they, they kind of did the cosmic brownie thing. Right? They're like, well, it would be really good if we had a little bit more information. Um, and, and, and so, so they put some things in there. Like every, like, I mean, there's flour and stuff, but there's something called titanium dioxide. That sounds like something you make a bomb with, bomb with not something you eat. Right? But it's in there, in your cosmic brownie, as you enjoy it. Um, and so, so what happens is, is that, that the, somebody copying it adds some, some information, probably most of it totally accurate, totally good information that they had received from other sources, but more than likely, everybody agrees, not part of what Mark had originally written. Maybe Mark did have a little more after verse 8, and that just got lost. We kind of doubt that. It seems like Mark just ended at verse 8. But... I wanted to address that because I didn't want you to kind of, some of you might have just kind of like this, this critical mind who's working through this, and you don't want to have this pastor who just glosses over hard stuff. Like, what's his deal? He just skipped over 9 to 20? I wanted to explain that. I don't want to get super technical. If you're somebody that wants to get super technical, I'll get super technical with you. We can talk about this. There's some good evidence for, for understanding why Mark 16, 9 to 20 in every English translation um, has these kind of footnotes around it saying, hey, but what about this? This, this? this looks like it was added later. But it's been there for so long that we still include it. Okay? A couple, just two pieces of evidence, just to kind of throw it out there. One is, if you looked at the original language of, Mark six, of, of all of Mark, and you looked at verses 9 to 20, the vocabulary and the way that words are used and put together in Mark 16, 9 to 20, is totally different than the rest of the gospel. It doesn't even sound like the same writer, because it probably is not the same writer, right? The other reason would be that some of the earliest and most reliable manuscripts we have don't have it. And if you can imagine copies being made of copies, which ones are going to be the most accurate? It's the earliest ones, right? The ones that were written first. And so the earliest ones don't have, and the earliest and most reliable don't have verses 9 to 20 in them. So that kind of gives us some indicators that this was something that was tagged on in the end. Okay? So, uh, does that, that make sense? Make more sense than Sunday school? If you were in Sunday school today, sorry, that didn't make a lot of sense. Hopefully that makes sense, though, uh, today. Uh, Mark 16, 9 to 20, um, a, a very early but not original part of the Gospel of Mark. 
Um, so, just just very quickly, what does it say? Like, I'm not we're not trying to hide anything by saying. But Mark 16, 9 to 20, says stuff, like I said, that basically we read other places as well. So in 9 to 11, we hear of Mary uh, Magdalene, who sees the resurrected Jesus, goes and makes a report to the disciples. They have a hard time believing that it's true. Verses 12 to 13, the resurrected Jesus shows up to a couple of disciples on a country road. We can read about that in Luke's gospel, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then in verse 14, the resurrected Jesus appears to the disciples. There's a form of the Great Commission. In verse 15, he says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And the first time that we have something that kind of like, oh, wait, I'm not sure that I see that anywhere else in Scripture, is verse 16. Verse 16 says, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Okay? Whoever believes and is baptized we will be saved, but whoever does not believe will whoever does not believe will be condemned. Okay, so we get to that and we say, Oh, hold on a second. So you have to be baptized to be saved? And anytime you come to a confusing spot in scripture, you want to look at what other scripture says, it's clear from looking at the rest of scripture that, that you don't have to be baptized to be saved, right? That baptism isn't a requirement of salvation. But here it almost seems to read that way, but maybe not quite, because it says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe, but it doesn't say, but whoever does not believe and does not get baptized will be condemned. It just says, whoever does not believe. So, so anyway, that's, that's one of the spots where like, ooh, I'm not sure, and, and the rest of Scripture clearly teaches that you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Salvation comes by faith alone, in Christ alone. And then, and then we get to uh, the final verses, verses, uh, let's see, that was... 16, verse 17, saying God is going to have various signs that accompany those who believe and proclaim the gospel. Um, there's something in there about handling snakes, um, which is interesting. It just says they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Okay, that will not be served at the dinner uh, following. We're not going to try that out. Um, and, and that's one of those spots like, well, we only really see that here in Scripture. And so, again, looking at, well, this was probably added a little bit later, not original to the Gospel of Mark. We're not going to put a lot of stock in that, right? Um, and then verses 19 and 20, Jesus ascends into heaven. The disciples go out to preach as God works in mighty ways through them. Here's the deal. That, is that a good enough explanation of Mark 16, 9 to 20? Again, if you want to get technical, you've got some questions. Maybe, maybe you're like, oh, but what about this? Let's talk about it. Call me this week. Send me an email, whatever. Let's talk about that because I don't want this to be a stumbling block for anybody. But I also don't want to ignore it and pretend that it's not an issue. This is, this is there's, like I said, because copies were made of copies and all that stuff, we know that there are minor, minor textual variants. Okay? So there's things where we're like, Oh man, should it be this word or this word? Because this manuscript uses this word, and this manuscript uses that word. So there's minor things like that. This is the most major one that we have in the New Testament, is this whole section, where, where it's the most major, like, wow, so not even just a word, but a big thing. And, but here's the thing. We can have so much confidence in Scripture because not one of those textual variants ever declares something that, 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 would contradict everything else that we read in the Bible. Um, they're all very minor. It, there's no major point of doctrine that hinges on any one of those minor textual variants. So we can say with, with great confidence that the Bible is without error. Um, 
And so here's just a reminder. Here's what we say as a church, okay? Um, yeah, let, let, let me just read this. This is from our church's statement of faith. This is what we believe about the Bible. Um, we believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. The complete revelation of His will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. I like that statement. That sums up really well. Here's what we believe as a church about the Bible. That it's without error in its original writings. That it's the complete revelation of His will for salvation. And it's the ultimate authority through which everything else gets judged. That's what we've been talking about in Sunday school. That as we try and look at the world, this is the lens through which we see it. This we know is truth. There's a lot of other stuff out there that we're not sure about. We're not sure. There's other stuff that might contain titanium dioxide, right? We're not quite sure what that is or if we should be eating it. But we can be sure as we pick up the Bible that what we are holding is the Word of God. And we can trust what it says because it's always true. All right? Okay. So let's go ahead. And, uh, and open up to a spot that reminds us of that. Because I kind of wanted to walk through that, but I didn't want to walk us through to kind of like this hard thing without getting to Scripture and saying, but what does Scripture say about itself? Is it enough? Is it sufficient? If all we have, if Mark's gospel is just Mark's 1-1 through Mark 16-8, and 9 through 20 is not included, is that enough? And I would say, yeah. Yeah, it is. And so let's go ahead and open up your Bible to the passage we're going to look at. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. Just going to be two short points to go with this one today. But 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. And if you're able to, would you please stand as we read God's word this morning? 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. God's word says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gift. This is a gift to have your word, that you're a God who's not hiding out in the clouds somewhere, but that you're a very real and very personal God and a God who desires to be known. And so you've given us your word so that we might know you. Help us this morning. I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds so that by the end of this message, for all of us, our, our, our confidence in the, the sufficiency and supremacy of Scripture would would be stronger than it is right now. Your spirit can do that work, and I pray that he would do that in this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right, so two points you see in your bulletin about this passage. Just a little context first, because we're jumping into this book. By the way, um, we are getting back into... A, a going through a, a book of the Bible verse by verse starting next week. We're going to be in First Peter. 
1 Peter doing a series called When Trials Come. We'll start in 1 Peter 1.1, and we'll go through to the end of that. We'll get to the end of that around the end of summer. Okay, So that's what's starting next week. But here we're in the book of 2 Timothy. Book of 2 Timothy, we're, it's called Timothy because that was the recipient. He was the recipient of the letter. This is a letter, a letter written by a man named Paul to a man named Timothy. Paul is older. Timothy is younger. Okay? Timothy was raised by a mom and a dad, a mom who was a believer, a follower of Jesus, and a grandma who was as well, but a dad who was not. And so he was taught Scripture by his mom and his grandma as a young child. And as he grew up, God provided another person to teach him Scripture, and that was Paul. And he went along with Paul on some of his journey. And then Paul left Timothy in Ephesus so that Timothy could pastor the church that had gotten established there. So earlier, Lynn was reading from the book of Ephesians. That's the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. That's where Timothy is the pastor. And so Paul had kind of been a mentor or a spiritual father to Timothy. But now years have passed. Paul has continued on, and Timothy is still in Ephesus serving as a pastor. And Paul, now imagine how encouraging this would be for Timothy because being a pastor as a young man is hard in Ephesus. And he gets this super encouraging letter from Paul. So this is, that's, that's, the, that's the letter that we get to read. It's been preserved. This is the Word of God from through Paul to Timothy and now for us. And so we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, almost at the end of the letter. And, and Paul is giving kind of Peter, probably the last letter that Paul will ever, the last communication that Timothy will ever get from Paul. Paul is getting old. He's not going to live much longer at, the point, at this point. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, and he gives him these commands. Like in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I charge you, imagine this, your mentor, who from afar, he has mentored you, and now he's left, and now now he's kind of like this celebrity almost in the Christian world. He's writing you this letter, and he says to you, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Right? And he says, preach the word. That's his command. He's like, Timothy, you want to be a good pastor? Here's what a good pastor does. A good pastor preaches the word. So don't be sharing your opinions with the church in Ephesus. Don't just be sharing your experiences. You need to preach the word, Timothy. That's in chapter 4, verse 1. Immediately before that, Paul reminds Timothy of the power and authority of God's Word and the sufficiency of God's Word. And so that's what we're looking at today. Okay, So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. Two points. Point number one is this. Scripture is sufficient. Sufficient just means good enough. Okay, Scripture is sufficient to proclaim the message of salvation by faith in Jesus. Scripture is sufficient to proclaim the message of salvation by faith in Jesus. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 first. Here's what it says. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So Paul is just reminding Timothy of something. Timothy, remember the stuff that you've learned. You learned it from your grandma and your mom. Actually, if you want to turn back just like one page, you can read about that. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. 
says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Okay, so thankfully, by God's grace, Timothy had a mom and a grandma who both loved Jesus, and they recognized that as grandma and as mom, as parent and grandparent, their role was to teach this young child scripture. And so imagine Timothy had this advantage that, that a lot of other people didn't have. And Timothy's advantage was that from a young age, he was taught scripture. Okay? From his childhood. Notice all this, this language about knowing. It says learning and knowing and wise and acquainted with sacred writings. The idea is that, that Timothy's been taught scripture since he was a child. Just a quick application point on this. Parents, grandparents, are you teaching your kids Scripture? Pretty basic question, but are, are, are we doing that? In our homes, is that one of the things? We do lots of stuff in our homes. We eat a lot of food in our homes. We have a lot of activity that takes place in our homes. But in our homes, parents, grandparents, are you teaching your children Scripture? Kirsten and I have been talking a lot lately of, of just how scary sometimes. Sometimes, like, you just kind of seem to be, but sometimes you look at the world and you're kind of a little bit scared, especially if you have kids. Anybody with me on that? Like, you're looking at the world that they're growing up in, and you're like, oh, this is scary to send them out into that. And, and, and kids, not just kids, but everybody, we're taking in information all the time, constantly. We're, we're taking in information from from people at school, sometimes teachers, but most of the time the other kids at school, taking in a lot of information. We're taking in a lot of information from screens, whether that be a TV screen, a phone screen, a tablet screen, whatever kind of sc- a laptop screen. Screens are sharing with us a lot of information. And you know what? Some of it's true. And some of it's a pretty twisted version of the truth. And some of it's just a flat-out ugly lie. And so our kids are taking in information all the time from all sorts of different sources. And that's part of what makes the world a little bit scary. So one reaction could be we put our kids in this little protective bubble and allow them no contact with the outside world. And sometimes you might feel like doing that as a parent. And you might feel like crawling in with them, right? But not really very practical. It's hard to be light in the darkness when you're in a protective bubble constantly. And so what do we need to do? I think we need to get a lot more serious. This is not just like an extra bonus thing that we can do if we're super spiritual parents. I think what we need to do is we need to recognize with all that our kids are being bombarded with, we need to get them grounded and anchored in the Word of God. And a couple, if you're relying on a couple of hours of church activities each week to do that, we've got some awesome teachers. We've got some, some good stuff going on for kids in this church, but it's not enough. And so in your homes, as parents, as grandparents, you need to be teaching your kids Scripture. Timothy had that great advantage. And if you, you're kind of like, okay, I get it. I, I need that. I, I recognize that need. Nobody ever did that in my home. I'm not sure how to do it. Like, you, you need to make a plan. It's not going to just, like, happen. Uh, and if you're not sure how to go about doing that, just humble yourself. Yes, yes, for other parents' advice and a lot of other things, just, just go to some parents that you know are doing it and say, how do you do that? Um, and then they can help you with that. 
Um, there's a lot of things that we do with our kids. We're, we make sure they're always at school. We help them with their homework. We get them to their activities. We need to recognize the great need that we have as parents to teach our kids Scripture. Timothy had that advantage, and Paul reminds him of it and keeps bringing him back to it. Hey, listen, you've been hearing this stuff for a long time. And that makes Timothy, as an adult now, a much better pastor. He's been wrestling with this stuff for a long time. And he says, continue in it. Did you notice that in verse 14? But as for you, continue in what you have learned. It's not like Timothy graduated, now he's like, now I'm done learning. I hit 65, I'm getting Medicare now, and so I think I've pretty much learned everything I need to learn from Scripture. Like, that, that's not the attitude. The attitude is whatever, like, continue in what you have learned. Keep going, keep going, continue in what you have learned. Notice that it's not just about knowledge, though. It uses a lot of words about knowledge, knowing, becoming acquainted with. But then there's also this word in verse 14. As for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed. Timothy didn't just learn a lot of information, but Timothy also made the decision that he was going to firmly believe the information that he was taught. Right? So not only did he learn and and grow in knowledge, he also believed it. And so Paul says, continue in that. Continue to learn. Continue to believe. And here's the first purpose. Right? I said purpose number one, Scripture is sufficient to proclaim the message of salvation by faith in Jesus. Verse 15, the end of it says this. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Why do we need to teach especially kids, but why do we need to continually teach people Scripture? Why do we need to continue in what we have learned and believed? Because it is through Scripture that we hear the message of the gospel that points us to the truth of salvation through faith in Jesus. The Scriptures, it says, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's only one way in which salvation comes, and it comes not through knowledge of the Scripture, but it comes through faith in Jesus. And so I have this little thing, these little circles. You want to do the circle thing up there, Delaney? You want to do the circles up there? Yes, yeah, circles. Okay, so here's what we got. Oh, wait, actually, there's, there's circles before those circles. There we go. Um, scripture. Okay, so it starts with Scripture. We have God's Word, and it is something to be taught, something to be learned, and something to be believed. And as we do that, that leads to faith in Christ Jesus, which leads to salvation. Okay, faith in Christ Jesus is the means of salvation, or God's grace is the means, but that comes to us by faith. Salvation. And, And as we're saved, We get right back into Scripture again, and now we start teaching it to other people as we continue to learn it and believe it ourselves so that other people might be saved through faith in Christ, right? So so Scripture is central to what we do as a church and what we do as individuals. Let's go on to verses 16 and 17. Second point is this. Second point is this. Scripture is sufficient to equip us for every good work following salvation. So not only does Scripture teach us about Jesus so that we can hear the gospel, choose to have faith in Him in order that we might be saved, but Scripture also continues and is sufficient to equip us for every good work following salvation. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Look at verse 16. This is so good. We could spend a lot of time on this part. 
We'll do that some other time. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture breathed out by God. That's where we get this, this doctrine that we hold on to of the inspiration of Scripture. It's in, th- th- this is the very Word of God. It's not, we, got, not, we don't have to search through it and find some words of God. Scripture is the very Word of God, breathed out by Him. It's the foundation for our doctrine, the inspiration of Scripture, that, that Scripture is breathed out by God. And then it says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable or useful for, then it leaves four ways in which it's useful. Here's four ways in which Scripture is useful. One, for teaching. Scripture is useful for teaching. Right? If you're going to teach your kids stuff, Scripture is useful for that purpose. Whatever kind of teaching we're doing in this church, whether your kids are going to Sunday school, whether in Awana, whether we're here in the worship service or for Sunday school, our teaching is always going to be grounded in Scripture. Because Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. Are there other things that we can and maybe even should teach? Yes. There are lots of other things. Maybe you have a devotional book that's been really, really helpful for you. Maybe there's other books that you read. Maybe, there's, maybe you listen to sermons from me and from other people as well. All that stuff, very helpful. But all of it really is cosmic brownie, right? It contains some real stuff, and then it might contain some stuff that we have to question, right? Because we can't have that kind of confidence about any book we read, any devotional book we go through, any pastor that we listen to. We can't have the same kind of confidence in them that we do in Scripture. Scripture is the real deal. It is the Word of God, and so it is the ground for our teaching. And then we have the kind of this natural bent towards sin. All of us do, right? And so we need Scripture to tell us to stop sometimes. Like to tell you, hey, you know what? That's sinful. That attitude that you have about the person that you work with, that attitude you have about the person you live with, that's sinful. And so sometimes Scripture is not just used for teaching, but for reproof. That's the second one. For reproof. To tell you you're wrong. Third one, for Correction, not just telling you you're wrong, but telling you here, here's how you turn around. Repent, turn around. Scripture helps us with that. And then finally, for training in righteousness. Scripture is useful for training us in righteousness, teaching us how we ought to live. So purpose number two is this. As we allow Scripture to work on us in each of those ways, as Scripture is used for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, here's what happens. Scripture is we see is sufficient to make us as believers complete and equipped for every good work. We see that in verse 17. That's what it says. So that, or that, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the second set of circles looks kind of like this. Scripture, used in ways that we use, use it for teaching, reproof, correcting, and training in righteousness, and that leads to believers being equipped for every good work. And then we get back into Scripture and we do it all over again, right? All Scripture breathed out by God, useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 
So that means that Mark 1.1 through Mark 16.8, along with all of the rest of God's Word, is breathed out by God Himself. And it's sufficient. It is what we need. Some parts of Scripture, right? Some parts of Scripture taste like honey fresh from the comb. And other parts of Scripture are a little more bitter and hard to swallow. But all of Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's useful. And God gives it to us for at least a couple purposes. And the two that we saw today are this. God gives us His Word so that we could know it and trust in the Jesus to whom it all points so that we can be saved. Right? God's given you His Word so that we can know it and trust in the Jesus to whom it all points so that we can be saved. And if that's not where you're at today, I'd be happy to sit with you for a little bit after the service before we start eating together or maybe sometime this week. We could just open up the Bible and we can walk through it and I can point that out to you, how, how it points you to Jesus so that you can trust in Jesus and be saved. The second reason, we're given God's Word so that we might make it the grounds of our teaching and reproofing and correcting and training in righteousness so that all of us who are saved can through our study and belief in God's Word, that we might be equipped for every good work that God calls us to do. Knowing that everything else, as good as everything else might be, is just like a cosmic brownie. We're compared to the sweetness of the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for giving us your Word. I just thank you for my own experience in that as years of my life have gone by and I've studied your scripture more and more, sometimes with questions, sometimes with doubts, but that, that your Holy Spirit has worked in me in such a way that when I read your word, it tastes sweet. You say in your own word that, that your words are sweeter than honey dripping from the comb. God, I pray that you would help us as a church to experience it in that way. That we may be a church, that we might be a people who delight in your word and feast on your word, are satisfied with your word, so that we can know your word and teach your word and believe your word, because it all points to you. And as we, as we spend time in your word, I pray that you would open our eyes up again to who you are. And that we would be in awe as we stand before you, just to adore you. Thank you for giving us your word. Help us to trust in it. Help us to go to it frequently. Help parents who are given this, this task of raising kids in this world in which it's hard to raise kids. Help parents to know how they might be equipped to teach scripture to their kids. God, thank you for this good word. In Jesus' name, amen.